So I was talking to a friend of mine a while back about his marriage, um, and in particular, we were talking about the dynamics between he and his wife, and, and in particular about that, we were talking about um, how his wife became uh, such a confident leader. And, and here's what you need to know about this couple. He uh, ran one of the premier camps in America called Camp Canacuck. He was one of the, the leaders of that. And, and his wife was this kind of quiet, introverted woman. But yet, when they were together, you know, because he was this dynamic, extroverted leader, you would think that she would just kind of fall in his shadow. But she didn't. When she walked in the room and he was in the room, she had this confidence about her and she had this, this leadership and she had this heart for discipleship and women about her. And, and, and that was never squashed in his presence. And so I was asking him about that. And this was years ago. Um, and, and, and partly, too, the reason I was asking about it is because I heard her tell the story of growing up, how shy and introverted she was. And so I was like, how in the world did she make this transition from being this quiet, shy, introverted girl into, into this kind of dynamic, confident leader. And, and he, goes, he goes, well, it's interesting. He goes, her, she and I just talked about this not too long ago. And her answer really surprised Keith. And, and so he told me. And he said that when they met, she had no idea why he was interested in her. Right? Like she thought... Um, she, this is her terms, not his, and certainly not mine, but she said on a scale of one to 10, I was like a two or three. I wasn't attractive. I was quiet. I was unassuming. I loved Jesus and tried to follow him as faithfully as I could. But, but, but when you put a crowd of women out there, I wasn't the one that stood out. She goes, but yet Keith saw something in me that nobody else saw. And so then Keith said, I always saw her as a 10, not just physically, but in who she was. I saw the leader in her before she did. And then she said, the thing that changed me, the thing that moved me from a four to a 10 was the fact that Keith kept telling me over and over and over again that I was a 10. He kept telling me over and over again that, that I was the best discipler of women that he has ever seen. He kept telling me over and over again that I was the best leader that he had ever seen. And she said, so I guess the reason I'm a confident leader now is because I finally started believing what he always knew was true. I finally started believing what he told me was true over and over and over again. See, Keith saw what was true about Karen before she did. And because he kept telling her over and over and over again, she started to believe it. And this happens in all of us, right? What's repeated as true about you, you start to believe is true about you. And this is good and bad, right? If, 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 if somebody sees the, the good in you and, and keeps repeating that over and over and over again, you start to believe that it's true. And if somebody repeats to you all the bad stuff about you over and over and over again, you start to believe that that is true. And so what somebody repeats to us over and over and over again, we start to believe is true. 
So what does this have to do with today's message in Hebrews? Well, it has to do with everything. And I think not just in today's message in Hebrews. I think it has everything to do uh, with the most important aspects of your spiritual life. Because just like my friend Keith saw what was true in his wife and repeated it over and over and over again, here is what I want you to consider today. Is this question. What does God say is true about you? Right, and here's what I want you to consider. What God says is true about you, he repeats it over and over and over again. So as scripture says, a witness of two or three, something that is declared is true, right? God's not gonna say something once and expect us to get it. He repeats it over and over and over again. And if we can answer this question today, here's what I think will happen. I think the answer to this question determines if your spiritual life is about work and striving. In other words, what you think God says is true about you determines how you respond to him, right? And it can go in two different ways. It can go in one way where you feel like you've got to do this song and dance and you've got to perform for for God's attention and you've got to perform for God to like you. You've got to perform for God to smile when he sees you. Or the other way that you could answer this question Yields a spiritual life that is about trust and rest and joy. And which is why today, here's what we're going to see. Today, we're going to see that Jesus is greater than our striving. And striving is this word that means to work. But not just to work like for good work. It means to work to earn something. Right, and we're going to see that Jesus is greater than our work to earn, to earn his approval, to earn his forgiveness. And we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 through 18. If you have your Bible, you can open it today, or if you need a Bible, there's some uh, right in front of you. Um, and if you don't own a Bible, please take that one with you, or you can open the Bible app. <clears throat> Excuse me, you can open the Bible app, uh, go to events, click on Fellowship Asheville, and uh, the scripture that we're going to be using is there, and and announcements is there, everything you have is there. There's also questions to consider after the message, so you can kind of process the message on a different level. You can also take notes and save them. It's It's a great app for you. And as we continue in our, our series in Hebrews, we pick up with this sermon. And in the book of Hebrews, remember, it's a sermon. We don't know who preached it. We don't know who wrote it, but we know who it was preached to. And it was a preached to a, a group of Jesus followers who grew up in a Hebrew home. They grew up in a Jewish home, which is why this book is full of the Old Testament talking about a high priest and talking about the tabernacle and talking about the law of God because as a Hebrew congregation, they would have understood that. Now, we're far removed from that. And so part of our task, part of my job, is to bridge that gap between what a a Hebrew would know, a person who grew up in a Jewish home would know, and what we don't know, and to try to bridge that gap. And and today is no different, Um, which is why... It starts like this. Look at verse 1 in chapter 10. It says, For since the law uh, has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, 
It can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Now, if, if you grew up in a Jewish home, you would, you would know intrinsically what this preacher was talking about, right? Because from chapter 4 to chapter 10, he has done this long discourse on the high priest, right? How many of you have never heard of the high priest before we started Hebrews? And how many of you are tired about hearing about him now? Right? That's what this preacher is doing. One of the, I remember in seminary, one of my um, uh, professors said there's three rules to teaching. Repetition, repetition, and repetition. Right? This preacher has that down. Right? He has talked about the high priest over and over again. He's talked about the law, and he's talked about, about the tabernacle, and he's talked about the sacrifices that were made, and, and how the Jewish people had to come to the temple and, and make these sacrifices. And he's summing up all those thoughts on all these by saying that there's something that all of these sacrifices could never tell you. And so remember, our question is, what does God say is true about you? And so he's saying all of this stuff, the high priest, the, the tabernacle, the sacrificial offerings, all of this, all of the law could never tell you one thing. And all of the law could never tell you this, that you are perfect. They could never tell you, you are perfect. Now, let's just this complete, something that lacks nothing. It's, it's, it's embodied in the Hebrew word shalom, which they would use as a greeting. And that means whole and it means complete. And what this preacher is saying is that all of, these, all of these sacrifices, they never could tell you you are perfect. And here's why they can't tell you you're perfect, because they actually tell you something else. Look at verse 2. It says, otherwise, otherwise would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. Now, he's making reference to the, to the uh, offering of atonement, which the high priest did every year. He would go in and, and offer sacrifices for his own sins and then offer sacrifices uh, for the sins of the nation. And so every year there was this reminder of sin. There was this reminder that, that you needed sacrifice. And so this preacher is saying that this system of continually offering sacrifices had one thing to say that was true about you over and over and over again. And what it said over and over and over again again is actually this. It said, you are imperfect. You are not complete. You need something. So imagine with me, and keep in mind, we're thousands of years after this, so we have to imagine. But the people who heard this sermon preached for the first time, they didn't have to imagine. They could just remember. They could remember what it was like to live under this system of laws upon laws of their Jewish faith that sent people to, people to the tabernacle and later to the temple to be purified and to be clean, cleansed. And they did this for all sorts of reasons. If you were a woman, you had to go to the temple or go to a tabernacle or, or, or go to a synagogue uh, every time you had your monthly cycle to be purified. Every time, like you had to go do that. And people would bring offerings for their crops and they would sacrifice animals to, to restore relationships that were broken. They would, they would make sacrifices and offerings to, to receive this forgiveness from sins, this temporary forgiveness from sins. And, and this system 
The system required work. This system required striving. It required you to earn God's forgiveness. It required you to do something to be perfect. And as a result, all of this work actually just reminded you that you needed to continue to work. Because once that high priest went into that holy of holies, the most holy place, and offered sacrifices for the sins of the nation, once he came out, the tally mark started adding up again for why he needed to go back in. You see, all this work to produce this simple understanding that you are imperfect. And for some of you, this is why this is important. For some of you, this is what your spiritual life feels like. Right now, this is what it feels like. Your spiritual life feels like work. And not effort, but it feels like work to earn God's approval. It feels like Striving. It feels like you're the one that has to do the song and dance to make God happy. And your day-to-day existence with God is just a reminder of how incomplete you are. You keep feeling like you're doing the work of religion and all you're getting out of it is this nagging sense that you've got to do more work. And church, if this is you, I need you to hear me say this. In Jesus, it doesn't have to be. That's where this preacher is going. Look at this in verse four. It says, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins, right? So these sacrifices were never intended to take away sin. They were intended to do something else. They were intended not to take away your sins, but they were intended to point you to your need for a savior, they were intended to, 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 for you to understand this is temporary, but one day there will be something eternal. Yes, you have to come back every week, every month, every year. You have to come back and do this, but one day you won't. That's what these sacrifices were intended to point to. And here's why this is important. I asked you a question a few minutes ago. What does God say is true about you? Does God say you're imperfect? Because your answer to this, if, if you say yes to that, it determines everything about your spiritual life. If you believe that God says you're imperfect, then your spiritual life is marked by work and it's marked by striving and it's marked by doing all these things for God's approval. Or, I think this is even more sinister. If you believe that God says you're imperfect, then you've given up trying. Your spiritual life is marked by apathy because you understand God is holy and you're not. And there's no amount of work that you can do to be holy and so you've just given up trying. And that's a response to what life looks like if you believe God says you are imperfect. Well, let's look at what God says is true about you in verse five. It says, consequently, this word means because of all this, and and so really this is all from chapter four to now. 
right? Not just these few verses, but, but consequently, because of all of this, because the system was set up to point you to, to, to the fact that you are imperfect, that this is a temporary fix, but there's an eternal one coming, and that eternal one that comes is going to declare something brand new about you. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, so this one person, Christ, came into the world and changed everything. This one person changes this system that's always telling you you're imperfect, that's always telling you you're incomplete, that's always telling you you're lacking. One person came into the world and changed all of this. And his life and death and resurrection did something. Look at what it did. It changed everything. It says, consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me, and burnt offerings and sin offerings you've taken no pleasure. And then I said, behold, I've come to do your will, O God, as is written of me in the scroll of the book. And all of this is taken from Psalm 40, and our preacher goes ahead and tells us what this is about. So I don't have to. Look at this. In verse 8, when he said above, you have neither desired nor, taking pleasure, nor taken pleasure in the sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. So there's that system. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. Now this term, he does away with. So all this system was set up and Christ came into the world and changed the system. And what he did, this, this preacher is saying, he does away with this first system. Now, this word is more than just he put it in a box and forgot about it. How many of you, if you read the update, I kind of alluded to this in the update. How many of you have moved and you left some of the boxes that you moved with, you left them unpacked in your new home? Yes. Just two? Come on. Right, we've all done it, right? We all have these boxes that are unpacked and sometimes they're so long unpacked, the little moving label that's on them, you can't even remember what move that's from, right? It's not only years, it could be decades that that stuff is sitting in that box unpacked. And the question is, why do we keep it? Not all of us are hoarders. Some of us might be, but not all of us are hoarders. Why do we keep that box? But We keep it because we think we might need it later right? That's why we keep it. Now, if I were to ask you what's in that box, you would say, I have no idea, but I might need it later, right? What this preacher is saying is that sometimes in our spiritual life, we take the law, we take this high priest, we take all this offering, this, this temporary system that was set up, and we put it in a cardboard box because we think we might need it later. But this term that he used he did away with, it's the same term that means to kill something. And so what he's saying is that when Jesus came into the world, he didn't put this, all this system into a cardboard box for us to use later. He put it into a coffin. Now, how many of you have ever dug, please don't raise your hand if you have, because there's some laws we might have to talk about. But how many of you have ever dug up a coffin to look what was inside? Nobody. Why? Because it's dead. Death is inside. And this preacher is saying, 
If you live under a system where you believe God calls you imperfect and you have to keep striving and working to earn his pleasure, you're living in this cardboard box. You're living in this box where God, where you're saving it for later just in case you need it. But God has done something else with that. He hasn't put it in a cardboard box. He's put it into a coffin. And if your spiritual life feels like work to earn God's approval, then, then you might have placed your thinking in a cardboard box instead of the coffin that Jesus put it in. Because you see, church, there's an entirely different way. This, this second way is what this first way always pointed to. Because what this preacher is saying, he's not saying that Jesus broke that law. He's saying that Jesus fulfilled it so that you no longer need it. That's what he's saying. That in Jesus, all the promises of God are yes and amen. And look at what this second way does in verse 10. And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. The NIV translates this phrase, sanctified as being made holy. By this, we have been made holy. You know what the word holy means? It means perfect. It means complete. It means whole. So what this old way pointed to was imperfection and death. And there was work and you walked away with the knowledge that you were imperfect and you had more work to do. But with Jesus, what he did, his death and burial and resurrection to pay the penalty for your sin and my sin, in Jesus, you're no longer imperfect. In Jesus, you are perfect. You are holy. Look at this in verse 11. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which never takes away sin. And, and I love this because if you look, this is in present tense. And so what this preacher is saying to this Hebrew congregation of Jesus followers is he's saying, listen, right down the street at the synagogue, there is a priest there every day offering these sacrifices for sin. And so for us, we have to imagine for them, all they had to do is look down the street, that this system was still very real and very very much in process. And this system says you are imperfect. Verse 12. But when Christ had offered for all time a single um, for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. And see now you're perfect. The work is done. Nick said a few, a few weeks ago, he, he made the comment when he was preaching that in the temple, there was never a seat, right? There was never a chair because the priests were always standing. The priests were always working. There was, there was work to do. And this preacher is, is capitalizing on the idea that it says that Jesus is seated at the right hand of God. His work is done. The work is done. Temple, you're imperfect the work continues. Jesus, you are perfect and the work is done. He is, seat, he is seated down. Look at verse 14. For by a single offering, that's Jesus. And I love, this, I love this verse because it sounds so counterintuitive. For by a single offering, that's Jesus, he has perfected, 
right? He has perfected. He has made you holy. You are perfect. He has perfected for all time. This, this isn't just if you do this. This is for all eternity. Jesus has perfected. Jesus has made you holy, and this never changes. So for by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Now here's what's ironic. He's saying you are holy as you are becoming holy. Figure that one out. Let me tell you what that is. It's like Keith and Karen, right? Keith saw Karen as something much greater than she saw in herself. And he declared that over her and declared that to her over and over and over again until she started believing it. It means that you are moving from a two or three to a 10 because you have someone who is declaring over you, you are a 10. You are perfect. You are holy. Now you may feel like a four or you may feel like a two or a one or a negative 13, on any given day, but you have a God who declares you are perfect as you are becoming perfect. Anybody know what this feels like? Even though you may hear me tell you and even though you may hear God say you are perfect, it's a whole lot easier to believe that you're imperfect. Right, it's a whole lot easier to believe that we need to do something to earn God's approval. We need to do something to earn God's forgiveness. And yet God sees you as holy and complete, but yet you feel incomplete. And this happens a lot in one particular area, and it's when you sin. When I sin, when you sin. And then you turn to God in that sin. And the way this idea of being imperfect or perfect plays out is when you turn to God and that sin, is God smiling or is he pointing a finger at you? See, if you believe that God's pointing a finger at you, you still think you're imperfect. But what this scripture shows us, and it's repeated over and over and over again, is that when God sees you, he sees his son. Because of what Jesus did, when God sees you, he sees you as perfect and he sees you as holy. And so when God sees you in the midst of your sin, he sees you as better than you see yourself. Last week, I was visiting my mom in Texas, which was a great experience, and I'd love to tell y'all off air because she listens. Um, it really was a great experience. Um, um, but I had a lot of alone time. My mom's 82. She watches the Hallmark Channel all the time, which those movies are strangely engrossing. I'm just going to tell you that. Um, you know how it's going to end, right? You know that the guy and the girl are going to fall in love, and if they don't, there's going to be a to-be-continued. They're going to fall in love in the next movie. Like, you know how it's going to end every time, but I couldn't help myself. I was sucked in, which has nothing to do with what I'm talking about, but but, you know, sometimes when you get time away, you get time to think. And, and, and I was, um, in, and honestly, I was in a bad place in my head. And, and I had all this stuff running through my head. I had um, previous sins that, that just were, felt really heavy to me. 
I was thinking about conversations where I have said things that, that hurt people and, and I was kind of sorting through that. I was, I was sorting through accusations of things that people have said about me and, and it all was feeling very, very heavy and I was in just this downward spiral in my mind. Have y'all ever caught yourself there? And I was in this downward spiral and as I kept spiraling down, like for some idea, I thought, okay, I know what'll help. And I started like intentionally bringing to mind these images that I have seen in my past, honestly, of, of pornography and nakedness and things that, that, that shouldn't come into my head. I went there because for some reason I thought, oh, this will comfort me. But it also scared me because I thought, this is how far down that I've gotten. And let me tell you how this plays out. If I believe that God saw me as imperfect in that moment, what I would try to do is I would try to be like, okay, I gotta think about Bible verses. I gotta get a worship song in my head. I gotta get my mind right before I turn to God. That's that cardboard box thinking. That's thinking that God says, yeah, actually you are a two or a three. Actually, you are a negative 13. But instead of doing that, probably because I had this sermon in my head and so I'm so thankful for it. Because I was like, no, God sees me as holy. And so I just said, God help. In the midst of this sin, in the midst of this junk, in the midst of this weight and, and, and junk that I'm carrying, would you help? And in my mind, I, I literally pictured me standing there with, with junk dripping from my hands and seeing God look at me and seeing him smile that I turn to him in the midst of this junk. And he sees us as holy. Like that's our God. That's our Jesus. So what does God say about you? He says that you are holy as you are becoming holy. That's what our God says. Look at verse 15. I can't read. It says, And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, This is the covenant that I will make with them. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Y'all, here's what this means. If, if you were ever, if you're a Jesus follower and you were ever in a place where you never had access to the old covenant, what this is saying is that you could, because the Holy Spirit indwells in you and because of that, because he writes his laws on your heart, you could live a holy and righteous life without ever reading any bit of the old covenant. Because God dwells in you. It's that dead. Jesus fulfilled it that much. And then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. No longer any offering for sin. That sounds like perfect to me. So let me ask you, church, are you tired of being tired in your spiritual life? And perhaps you've been living out of boxes and what you need to do is put that stuff in a coffin. And perhaps you've been living out of the old way, consistently working to earn your forgiveness instead of simply receiving the forgiveness that is offered in Jesus. Perhaps you've been striving for perfection and if so, there is a better way. 
And that is our gospel. That's why Jesus died and rose from the dead and he paid the penalty for our sins so that all you do is receive what Jesus has already done. That is our gospel. And that in Jesus, you are forgiven. In Jesus, you have God's approval. In Jesus, he sees you as good and he sees you as holy. Dallas Willard, who is this great author and, and, and pastor and, and, and wrote on the disciplines and wrote on grace, he says this. He says, the grace of God given in Jesus is never opposed to effort. And what he means is that sometimes your spiritual life will require you to do something you don't want to do and it's gonna feel like work. That's not you being imperfect. Listen to what he says. He says, the grace of God given in Jesus is never opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning. And so are you trying to earn God's favor and forgiveness? If so, I have a simple phrase for you to consider. And I want you to write it down. I want you to declare it. I want you to to put it in your car as you drive. And it's simply this, be who you already are. In Jesus, be who you already are. You are holy as you are becoming holy. And when you sin, you don't have to clean yourself up to come to God because he already sees you as cleaned up. Be holy as you are being made holy. And this week, when you catch yourself in sin, no matter how deep, no matter how ugly, no matter how small, no matter how simple, immediately turn to God in confession and repentance. Don't clean up first because that's living out of the cardboard box. Turn to him and see his smile. This holy smile of God that keeps saying, you are perfect. You are complete. You are holy. And church, this week, let's be who God says we already are. Let's be holy as we are becoming holy. And let's turn to him when we feel like we can't. And here's why. Everybody wants God's smile. Right? Everybody's striving for God's smile. And we've got it. We've got it. And let me tell you, if people live like God is smiling on them, it'll change the world. So this week, let's receive that smile from God, even when we think we don't deserve it. Let's pray.